Welcome. With Michael Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a serious XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. If I'm not mistaken, today is the formal release date for Pat Buchanan's brand new book. It is titled The Greatest Comeback, How Richard Nixon Rose from Defeat to Create the New Majority. I've already read it, thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact, it gave me the best insight into Richard Nixon than any other book I've ever read, including books written by Richard Nixon. This is Pat Buchanan. Hey, Pat, thanks so much for coming back to the program. Delighted, Michael. How are you? I'm well, and and congratulations on the book. I think it's going to be a smashing success, and you really did have the front row seat to write it. Well, that's right. I joined up with Richard Nixon, I guess, at the nadir of the Republican Party right after the Goldwater disaster, where Nixon had been lead surrogate. And he had twice, of course, lost badly, once to Jack Kennedy in 1960 in a razor-thin margin, but he had lost, and he got beat badly by Pat Brown in California, had that infamous last press conference, you're not going to have Nixon to kick around anymore, quit politics, moved to New York. And then in 1965, after the Goldwater debacle, I guess the Republican Party Party was about as low as you could go. Take me into the Nixon Mudge Law Office, January 1966, and paint the picture of who is in the outer office. The we're on the 24th floor. That's the senior partners floor of the Nixon Mudge Rose Guthrie and Alexander Law Office. John Mitchell had not come aboard. He didn't come aboard till 67. You get off the elevator, you go down the hall, you take a long left turn and into the end office, which looks over 20 broad, which is 20 broad, right next to the New York Stock Exchange is Richard Nixon's office with all the mementos in there of his vice presidency in his early days. And right outside the office is uh, his secretary's office, Rosemary Woods, young Pat Buchanan at the second desk, <laughs> and the third, <laughs> the third desk is... Uh, is Miss Patricia Ryan, who happened to be the future First Lady of the United States, using her maiden name as she answered the phones. <laughs> and that's what I mean when I say front row seat, Pat, because, you know, I'll watch the cable outlets today and someone will have in their Chiron advisor to President Clinton or advisor to President George W. Bush. And I often say to myself, if W. is watching from Dallas or if if Bill Clinton is watching from Chappaqua, I wonder if he even knows that man or that woman. Well, that's exactly right. They, a lot of times, I think presidents don't even, don't even know who these fellows are. Right. I've heard about fellows who were, you know, that said he was intimately close to Richard Nixon in his comeback years. Right. And I've never met the guy. <laughs> Did he send him a letter or something? (laughs) So you you are there because you come out of the Mon Valley, you go to Columbia, you're a journalism major, you're now working in the Midwest for the St. Louis Globe Democrat, writing editorials. But the way in which you're able to get on Nixon's radar, among other things, is to remind him of a caddy experience? 
Well, that's right. My mom was out of the Mon Valley in southwestern Pennsylvania, and she came to D.C. at 17 in the Depression and became a nurse. But we grew up in D.C., and so and so we didn't have summer jobs either. And so what I would do is hitchhike with my friend out to the country clubs and ask him, "Do you need a caddy for the you know for carry the golf bags around for these rich people?" And so we went over to Burning Tree, and the guy said, "Sure, you can go over and sit on the caddy log over there." And as I said, my friend Pete Cook and I, we integrated the caddy bench over there because we're the first <laughs> white guys there. And the fellas didn't like us who were there. They you know we were crowding them. But we didn't get any bags during the morning, and, and then we didn't get any in the afternoon. We were about to go home when, the, when the, the pro puts out this plaid golf bag, and I'm looking at Pete Cook, and I said, that's the bag of the vice president of the United States. Nixon's coming out for a late afternoon round of golf, 18 holes with a general, and I went around the entire 18 holes with the vice president of the United States. Had some big stories to tell when I got back to People's Drugstore that night. I'll bet. <laughs> so later now, when, when you have some journalistic credentials of your own, but you're still a young guy, you remind him of that experience. Right. He he was speaking in Illinois, and I'd spent three years in, after journalism school. I really got a lot of breaks in St. Louis. In six weeks, I was on the editorial page, writing editorials for, you know, the one of the largest papers in the country, 300,000 circulation. But, I'd, you know, I'd done, it, done that for three or four years, and other guys were doing interesting things. I'd been down in Mississippi, and I was at the March on Washington. But I wanted to get in the action. So Nixon was speaking in uh, Belleville, Illinois, about a year after the Goldwater disaster, and they were having a cocktail party at the cartoonist's house, who my friend, he was my friend, Don Hesse. And he said, come on over to the cocktail party afterwards. I think it was probably a fundraiser. So I went over there, and I walk up to Richard Nixon in the kitchen, and I say, sir, if you're going to run in 1968, I'd like to get aboard early. And he says, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm assistant editorial editor, you know, big title. He said, I don't care what your title is. What do you do? <laughs> So I said, I write editorials. And he said, well, what do you write on? I said, well, we've got two editorial writers. The Post-Dispatch has about eight. So I write on everything, local, county, municipal, national, international, foreign policy, everything. So he questions me for about, I'd say, about seven to ten minutes. And then he's got to talk to other people at the party. But the next day, going to Lambert-St. Louis Airport all the way across the river from Belleville, Illinois, Hesse drove him out there, and he came into the office, and he said, all Nixon talked about the whole way out was you. So then about two weeks later, I get this phone call at my desk in St. Louis, and it's the familiar voice. You know, can you come to New York? I'd like to continue our conversation, which I did. Flew up there and was in his office for three hours. And he was grilling me and testing me on every issue, the politics, conservatism, especially conservatism, uh, foreign policy, the war in Vietnam. And after three hours, he said, I'd like to bring you aboard for one year. You can help me write a syndicated column. You've got to get, handle my mail for me. I've got piles of it out there. You can travel with me in the campaign of 66. And we'll decide then if anything's going to go forward, because we don't, if we don't win a lot of seats in 66, we can forget it. <laughs> so that was the beginning of the whole trip back. And for one year and almost about three more months, I was only the only aide he really had who was full-time and with him all the time and sending memos in and out of his office on strategy and tactics. And The first idea we had, though, Michael, or I had, was, look, you know, I'd said, you know, Mr. Vice President, you've got the center of the Republican Party, the Republican regulars, they love you, the county chairman, you've campaigned for him for, you know, 15, 20 years. 
What we need is we need to marry your base to this Goldwater movement. And I was a Goldwaterite. And if we get the Goldwaterites and the Nixon regular Republicans together, there's no way a Romney or a Rockefeller can come in from the left and beat us. I mean, we have it all locked up if we can get those two together. So we spent the year, Michael, working on, uh, you know, Barry Goldwater. I think you probably read my letter to Barry in there on uh, Governor Absolutely. Romney. <laughs> you know, it, so, it, it, I was going to say he expresses on on that issue of bridging the gap in these different factions of the party. He expresses uh, some disdain for the far right. You uh, you uh, actually it's Whitaker who shares this observation and you say it rings authentic. Here's Richard Nixon, quote, the trouble with the far right conservatives is that they really don't give a damn about people and the voters sense that. Yet any Republican candidate can't stray too far from the right wingers because they can dominate a primary and are even important in a close general election. And I thought, boy, there's an observation that some, myself included, would say hasn't changed. Well, you know, that is uh, that is authentic, as I say. It is Nixon's thinking at one time, I'm sure, as he talked to a liberal aide, a very nice guy, John Whitaker, and I'm sure that is his feeling after what was done to him, and it was certainly the feeling of the Nixon staff. See, I was not with Nixon out in California when Joe Schell, and he was a hardcore, he was an American patriot war here and everything, but he, they tore Nixon up on his membership on the Council of Foreign Relations, and the Birch Society was on his case. And they were enormously bitter because in that primary, while Nixon beat Shell two to one, Shell really wounded him badly, and he lost to Pat Brown. So inside the Nixon camp when I was there, there was simply no one but me who came out of the Goldwater movement, you know, who had been there. And, you know, I was always pro-Goldwater. I'd been like Nixon. But I that, you mean, that just rings true. And other times you saw on top of one of my memos, I wrote him that Whitaker came back, and I said he suggests we move to the left here, here, and here. This is insane. <laughs> he said, we'll lose the conservatives. When all, he said, you're exactly right. I've never believed in all this liberal crap, you know. And then he and scratched so he, it out. And then he scratched it out. That's right. But that reflected his thinking at the moment. So the point is, I right. He has these contradictory views. And uh, on a regular basis, and he at one point he thinks this this is correct, the other, and they may all be at times his judgment. I don't think anything you can can really take in there that is completely final and say this is who the man is. Could Richard Nixon, the Richard Nixon that you worked with from January of '66 through August of '74, could he win a GOP nomination in the current incarnation of the party? Yes. He could win the nomination, and he would work to bring the Tea Party aboard. He would not antagonize him. He would speak with respect of him, and he would run as a straight-line conservative. But like Nixon, he went up there after all the things Rockefeller had done to him. They call and they say, Rocky's desperate. He needs your endorsement in upstate New York, or he's going down the tubes. Nixon says, okay, I'll do it, and we'll get something for it. And so... You know, I think Nixon would work with all elements of the party because he would know, look, in the last analysis, if I beat my, my guys in the party, beat their guys in the party so badly, the other guys walk away and there's no unity, we can't win. 
So we've got to have a measure of tolerance, and we've got to hold our tongue, and we've got to reach out and pull them together and show some unity, even if we, we don't like each other. And then we've got to go find some Democrats, because, Michael, when I was came with Nixon, Democratic Party outnumbered the Republicans more than two to one in the House and in the Senate and the governorships. How would you classify, Pat, Richard Nixon in ideological terms? I would say he predated he predated the ideological clash between the Goldwater movement, if you will, and then the dramatic new left. And certainly, he was not an establishment liberal. I would classify him as middle American Eisenhower's small C conservative who accepted the New Deal. Uh, but who believed in a strong anti-communist foreign policy, very much like Jack Kennedy. You know, I don't think Jack Kennedy was an ideologue. He would make fun of the liberals and, and, and comment on Adlai Stevenson and the rest of them, I think the same way that Nixon would disparage sometimes those on the right. And, you know, they got on Nixon's nerve and they got on Kennedy's nerves. I think both were, you know, came out of that World War II generation. And Jack Kennedy had a lot of conservative instincts, uh, you know, as anti-communist, things he said in the 40s sound like Barry Goldwater. So I think the two of them are very alike in that. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. I, the more I got into the book, the further I read into the book, the more I became convinced that he wanted Pat Buchanan because of your intelligence and your assessment of the issues and also your consistency, even when he didn't share it. You, you make an argument about how Nixon deliberately surrounded himself by differing schools of thought. I forget what the hiring moment was, but there came a point where Nixon wanted to maintain balance instead of being too loaded up from far right or, or more liberal Republican forces. Is that how you saw your role? Well, exactly. I mean, he asked me to go out and help him find a speechwriter, he mentioned, to balance me. In other words, he wanted someone, a moderate Republican or a liberal Republican, or someone to balance me because he knows I'm writing this material and you've got real influence over him. You've got everything that goes through his inbox comes or is in the inbox as I put it there or I passed on it. So he went out and I, you get, we got Ray Price, a New York Herald Tribune writer, and he had written the editorial endorsing Lyndon Johnson over Barry Goldwater. And that was just astonishing. It'd be like the Wall Street Journal endorsing, you know, endorsing someone over a conservative Republican. So, but he, that's what he wanted. And then when we went out and got Dick Allen, he said, okay, we got Dick Allen, who's a foreign policy conservative. We need somebody from balance, somebody from the establishment or somebody from the center. So he constantly wanted that input from the various components of the American electorate. And I think I write this, I do write the story in there. I was sitting in front of him one time and he was going down, I think to, you know, get in front of the newspaper editors. And there was me, Pat Buchanan, Catholic, conservative, Goldwater. There was Ray Price, establishment, New York Herald Tribune, liberal Republican. There was, you know, Ellsworth, who was a congressman from Kansas, who was with John Lindsay in the Wednesday group. And there's Len Garment, who's a Jewish liberal from New York. And so Nixon's bouncing ideas off and getting the reactions of each of us representing these constituency, as it were. And if you objected, he would say, now, why? Why do you need all that? And he was just, I mean, I will say he was terrific in that sense. Well, I, mean, I, loved, was, I loved the insights, the, you know, things like don't ever bring me a problem unless you're offering a solution. 
Yeah, uh, and, bring and, the problem, right, bring the solution. <laughs> right, and, 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 and Pat, the, the best part of the book for me are those back-of-the-house stories in terms of what it was like to travel with him. At some point, you said you received an unrivaled education from a master politician, and I was envious of that experience. Let me hit you with something else. The person who today should be going to Amazon.com or an independent bookstore and purchasing The Greatest Comeback is one Mitt Romney. Do you agree with me that there's a lot Romney, if he really still has an itch, there's a lot he can take away from this book? I think there is. And and let me say this. Uh, in, in terms of how Nixon handled it and pulled it all together and, frankly, defeated his father, although his father did an awful lot to defeat himself, I felt almost badly putting in all that material that was dumped on Governor George Romney in early 67. He'd started out ahead of us, front-runner. He was ahead of Lyndon Johnson by eight points, front-runner for the nomination by a large margin, stepped out in December of 66 and January of 67. Within two or three months, Michael, he had... Uh, He'd stepped in every cow pie in the pasture, and and they just <laughs> mean they were exploding left and right, and suddenly he was down, and then he went and announced he had been brainwashed in Vietnam by the generals and the diplomats, right. right? And and so he was just about. But I felt so sorry for Mitt, you know, that I put that paragraph in there. You know, young Mitt's twenty years old. He's in Paris. In, he's on his France, right. mission. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 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 what is it like for him reading the papers of that? You wonder. Hey, final final subject, at least for now, with Pat Buchanan, because I'm looking forward to, to actually hosting you in a week's time at Sirius uh, XM in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, President Obama recently delivered a speech at West Point and offered his foreign policy outlook, how do you fight al-Qaeda, so on and so forth. When I heard the words, I immediately thought of Richard Nixon, July of 1969, when Nixon said... In cases involving other types, meaning non-nuclear aggression, we shall furnish military and economic assistance when requested in accordance with our treaty commitments, but we shall look to the nation directly threatened to assume the primary responsibility of providing the manpower for its defense. Did it occur to Pat Buchanan a few weeks ago when Obama delivered those remarks that he was channeling the Nixon doctrine? Exactly. The Nixon Doctrine or Guam Doctrine, that was stated in Guam, I believe, at the time the astronauts came back, first astronauts from the moon. And, you know, that was uh, very much the foreign policy. I didn't agree entirely in those days with the Nixon foreign policy, but at the end of the Cold War, that's exactly the foreign policy we should have adopted. And basically, although he has not handled it well, I think Barack Obama, in removing us from Iraq, that war, and Afghanistan, maybe the departure wasn't good. I think that's what the American people want. I think that Nixon doctrine there, that, look, if our vital interests are not threatened, our people are not attacked, and it's someone else's quarrel, or as Barack Obama said, somebody else's civil war, they want to stay out of it. It's a terrible world, and we'd like to make it all well, but we can't, and we can't spend all this blood and treasure, you know, to, you know every, a war every decade doing it. When he said it, meaning Obama, I said to myself, haven't we reached a point where he could credit Nixon and that people would understand and respect that, yes, that was something positive that we gleaned from Richard Nixon? Or do we never reach that date? 
I think we do reach that. I think we will. I do think people as keep. I've run into a lot of people ask me, said, you know, what was what was Watergate all about, Pat? What happened to him? He seemed such a good president, and all the rest of it. Let me tell you a little story. When I went into the White House, I got a second golden opportunity after Watergate with Ronald Reagan and brought me in as communications director. And he pulled me aside. You know, he said, you know, Pat, I think President Nixon's foreign policy had an awful lot to commend it. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't saying it publicly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pat, the stories are great. The book is such a treasure. And, and at the end, when you, when you thank people, you also make reference to the fact that, Lord willing, you will get to the White House years. So I, I know there's a sequel, and I can't wait to see that, too. Well, thank you very much, my friend, and I look forward to getting together with you. You got it. That's Pat Buchanan. The book is tremendous. It is called The Greatest Comeback, How Richard Nixon Rose from Defeat to Create the New Majority. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.